Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast. This is Journeys with Jen. I'm Jennifer Griego. Today, I have a very special guest, and I'm so honored to have him on here. It's Tom Hoffman. He is a legend in the hunting world and a legendary bow hunter. He has so many great accomplishments, and I'm so grateful to call him a friend. He was the second person to get the archery grand slam, the third person to get the archery super slam, the first person to get the archery ovis world slam, which is 12 sheep around the world, and then the second person to get their archery Capra World Slam, which is like 12 goats along with the Ovis. So, hey, Tom, how's it going? Thanks for being on here. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, of course. And also, and also we have my dad here with me and my brother David here with us. David and Tom um, went hunting together after I got my four sheep and David got his first sheep. So they have spent a lot of quality time together on the mountain and they are very close. So I thought it fit to have David on this podcast. So how's it going? David good, and Dan. Good. It's an honor to be talking to Tom, be with you guys. Can't wait to share some awesome stories. Thank you. And I uh, really enjoyed your fly fishing up there in, uh, in the Yukon. <laughs> I learned from the best. Learned from the best. <laughs> that was with Raven's Throat Outfitters in the Northwest Territories. And you guys had, and I thank you, Tom. Uh, this is Bob. You. That was David's high school graduation gift to go up there and hunt doll sheep and mountain caribou. And it was awesome because... Um, you guys were going up there at the same time. You and Denise, she was going up there to hunt, and you were able to meet up. Uh, where was that? In um, uh, Where did you guys first meet up? In yeah. Edmonton. In Edmonton. Edmonton, yeah. Spent the night there, and then you traveled the rest of the way up to uh, Norman Wells and then yeah, on we, into we camp. we met you guys together. at base camp and then switched planes and headed off. Yep. We had like a 20-minute interaction, and then you guys were off. It was yeah. pretty cool. We were coming out of camp, and you are heading in. It was awesome. Yes. We had a great great time up there yeah david kept telling me stories we're, we're, we're going we're going back again this year oh, oh awesome awesome what are you guys going for denise is going to hunt a doll sheep gotcha oh, awesome. is, it, is it with raven's road again yep awesome. um, i'm gonna be uh i'm becoming more of a cheerleader <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot of fun yeah that's awesome it's uh great to have you as a cheerleader in camp and i'm sure giving the words of wisdom uh, on her stocks and stuff that's very valuable to have. Well, you know, uh, everybody stalks a little different. My buddy Jack Frost from Alaska, he is an incredible patient stalker, where I am more of an aggressive stalker. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, we, all, we all hunt a little bit different, but uh, one of the main things I think in, in stalking is knowing when to move and when not to move. And a lot of that comes from experience. Mm-hmm. I've had so many blown stalks and and things that over the years that you you learn. Sometimes you have to be a little more aggressive, and other times you have to be patient. But yeah, um, sure. that's that's one of the things that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. Well, my first question for you, Tom, is uh, when did you start hunting? When did you first get into it? Uh. I actually started hunting bullfrogs with a BB gun, <laughs> and basically when I was six, seven, eight years old, if it moved, it was in danger. <laughs> but, uh, I, I used to hunt bullfrogs, and you know, I live in upstate New York, and never moved my entire life more than five miles, uh, but we used to love to hunt bullfrogs and cut their legs off and skin them and cook them, and they were wonderful. But I've been hunting, uh, and then my dad took me rabbit, squirrel, and pheasant hunting. But uh, I started 
I was born in 43, 1943, so I guess it was right around, you know, 51, 52 is when I started chasing things. Dang, wow, that's and, uh, awesome. And what was your first, like, archery kill? Oh, uh, my first archery kill, believe it or not, was 1982. I shot a doe and a spikehorn buck in New York. Oh. And that was my very first archery uh, experience. I bought a bow to go uh, hunting sheep in 1983, but I just started it. I got encouragement from Dave Simpson, one of my guide mentors. Uh, the, the archery only area in Alberta is what really got me going. But my very first hunt, and then my very first sheep was actually a desert sheep. Oh wow! Uh, in 1985. Oh, wow. So did you ever rifle hunt, or did you just um, archery hunt? Oh, no. I, I rifle hunted right up until I started bow hunting in, in uh, really started serious bow hunting in 83. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've shot very, very few animals with a rifle ever since 1983. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So um, you began your, obviously, big hunting journey. Did you have the goal to get the first um, archery super slam, or did that kind of just happen after you started? It kind of just happened. I um, I had uh, my very first hunt was 1983 in Alberta for Bighorn. I did not get one. So in 84, but I really, really loved bow hunting. I, I, it just hooked me unbelievable in 83. So I booked a stone sheep and a, another Bighorn. In 84, got, didn't get a, a sheep on either one of those hunts. Mm-hmm. So the next year, I went all out. I think it's an addiction or just, uh, you know, sheep fever. Yeah. Uh, I, I bought all four sheep, and in February, I left the wild sheep show for Mexico and killed the desert the very first day. Oh, awesome. And so I, I got my... First grand slam in, in nine months. Oh, wow. that's crazy. That's amazing. That's amazing. With a bow and arrow, Do you know if that's the fastest slam? With a bow? With a bow. Do you know if that's like the fastest everyone's got a slam with a bow? Uh, no. Um, it used to be, but um, why can't I say his name right now? The medicine man, he's on the bow site all the time. Uh, gosh. I know him as well. <laughs> he got it, I think, seven months. Oh, wow. That that's that's yeah. insane. Yeah. Oh, that's Jake Ensign. Say uh, it again. Jake, he's, uh, Jake Ensign. He's from uh, oh. Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. uh, he's a retired pharmacist. But he, I believe he got it in somewhere between five and seven months. Dang. Wow. That is crazy. Wow. Congrats to him. That's insane. And congrats to you, Tom. Yeah, Nine months is that's, nothing to sneeze at. It's, it's very no, impressive. that's awesome. Um, so you, well, got- Archie, you know, back in those days, it was a lot more difficult than mm-hmm. it is. You know, we didn't have rangefinders that worked with them. And, you know, the bows were shooting about, you know, 90 feet a second. And uh, it was a different, different ball game. We didn't have good arrow rest. And it was, it was, um, a lot more of a challenge back then than it is today. But still, you know, I mean, we all know it's a tremendous challenge. But back in the day, 
a lot of different uh, different problems we had. Yeah, and I know my dad shoots up to like 100 yards and he can get pretty effective with the bow. What was your like effective range when you first started hunting with the um, like gear um, you had? I would say I rarely shot anything over 40 yards. Wow. Wow, that's and then that all that responsibility goes to the the skill coming behind stalking and making sure you're elite and nice and quiet when you're hunting the animal. Well, you just, you got to be sneaky, man, and you're impatient and whatever. But uh, uh, today's archery equipment, and now that we have rangefinders that really work and carbon arrows, and the equipment just so much improved. The arrow rests so much better equipment today. Mm -hmm. And um, like you were saying, the when you started, everything was different. Um, like, do you remember getting your first bow and like how much it cost? You know, I my very first bow was a like a little kitty bow. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, I was in a playground in in uh, school. I was probably grade three or four, and there was a flock of blackbirds out in the football field, and a bunch of us kids were out fooling around, and I shot and <laughs> drilled a blackbird. And then those kids thought I was the meanest dude in school. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was actually my very first kill with a bow, oh. but uh, I don't remember that. But my very first serious bow was a a, a bear grizzly, and um, I had that just for one year. And then they come out with a, a split limb bow called a quadruplex, and I don't really remember what it cost, but I'd say it was under two hundred dollars for sure. Oh dang! That was a bear bow, also. Nope, that was a, a boat called uh, was, uh, TSS, Total Shooting Systems. Huh? Uh, they went out of business, I don't know how long after that, but I shot that boat for about four years. And Dang. it was, it was that was 1980, uh, 83 I got that boat. Oh, cool. How my, my, my very first animal, believe it or not, was a brown bear with a boat. No way. Oh, wow. My, my, very, my very first trophy animal. I shot, like I said, a doe and a spike horn. But my very first out-of-state hunt was in the Alaska Peninsula for brown bear. Wow. Wow. And it, was, it was a pretty wild experience. How exciting was that? How um, nervous and uh, exciting was it to be? Well, I missed the bear early in the morning, the very first day of the hunt. And uh, I was really, really disappointed. I missed him at 30 yard shot out of the top of him. Oh. And anyway, that evening the bear came back to feed on this salmon that were kind of trapped in this little stream. And when I drew on the bear, the bear stood up and I shot him standing looking at me at 30 yards. Wow, and, that is crazy. Uh, wow. Made, made a good hit on it. And, and, uh, but that was my very first open young animal was was a brown bear. Wow, that's awesome. That's a kind of a scary start. I'd be scared if <laughs> I was standing there with a bear at 30 yards. And Tom, I think you said it before we started the podcast that when you got your North American 27, right, you were the first person to get all of those with, uh, that were Pope and Young record book, book animals. Is that right? Yeah. I th no, at the time there was, they actually got another species. I think it was Oh, I'm not sure if it was the Thule elk 
No, it wasn't two of the elk, but they added another species. There was 28. Okay. I was the first first one to get all of them that were registered at Pope and Young in the book. Chuck Adams had all of them except the polar bear. And uh, I remember talking to Chuck. He had a bad experience on the polar bear hunt. And he said he'd never hunt them again. But, uh, wow. And that's a, that, that's a hunt that I've been on six times, uh, mostly videoing other hunters, but polar bear hunting's an awesome hunt. Yeah, I've seen the video uh, of your polar bear hunt, and it's insane, and I um, I love that video. Did you, um, I know now you can't import the polar bears. Did you get it before that was a law? Like, do you have your polar bear with you, um, or were you not able to import it? No, I was I was uh, able to import it. That was 2003, and they stopped importing, I think, I don't know the date exactly, but I think it was like 2008. It's when they stopped allowing polar bears to be imported. Oh, wow. I hope they allow it again someday because there's lots of bears, and it's a shame that there's so many bears that are taken that are, you know, stuck up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- you bring up the point. I, I think a lot of people have the misconception that polar bears are endangered uh, species or threatened, and they're not. Right? Their numbers are very good. They've obviously had some changes in the ice patterns and that sort of stuff, but. My understanding is there are lots and lots of polar bears. Yeah, my hunt, the, the hunt that I uh, took my last bear with, I saw 39 bears in that one hunt. Wow. wow. How long were you there? I was, I was, I was on the ice 17 days. Wow. Uh, but I did see 39, and we, we were real careful not to count the same bears. Cause, uh, but it, it took that long to find a one, I wanted a really, really big old bear and, and got lucky. And I think my bear was 26 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, but, that's uh, amazing. It was good. Every, everybody I talked to, you know, in the last five or ten years have had great success hunting polar bears. And the thing that people don't realize, sport hunters uh, shoot mature, older bears. Almost always it's a boar. Hmm. And the fact is, boar bears eat cubs. Yeah. There's no no doubt about it. So it's almost like a predator on the species. Right. And by by shooting the, the older male bears, uh, because one bear will breed, you know, 10,000 if you can find them. But uh, it, it, people don't realize that. And there is lots of polar bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's people sitting. A lot of people sitting in Hollywood and Washington, they don't get it. They they just don't get it. They need to go up in the Arctic and, and actually see. Uh, there's so many of these polar bears coming into the villages now, right? Creating problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the other side of that is a lot of times people, if, if you take away the sport hunting, a lot of people that live up there don't have their income, and they poach them and they sell parts to China or whatever, and they're shooting cubs and females and other things that severely adverse the population in the opposite direction of killing the predator male bears. Exactly. Yep. I saw a report one time in, in Resolute at the game department that showed all the different hunters and what bears they shot. Most of the locals shot females because they taste better. Mm. Oh. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. 
Um, and I know there's so much contro- controversy about that, but it's very cool to hear your input on it, given that you have been there and have seen firsthand what goes on up in the Arctic with those bears and that their population is good and how much their presence and the hunting of them affects the villages around that. Yep. And, and you know, uh, it's, it's really hurt the income in, in a lot of these villages when they, they don't allow any uh, seal products to be imported in America. Mm-hmm. They have got some of the most incredible uh, seal products that the locals make that they can sell in Canada and sell in different countries around the world. And uh, it, it's really a shame that it's, it's hurt their income. Mm, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it is. Um, uh, going back to kind of your bow setup, um, what do you think the most um, has changed the most over the years that you've been bow hunting? Has it been like the best um, optics? Uh, or yeah, range finder? like the significant advancements. Yeah, there's, there's, well, I, you sent me these questions and I wrote down a few things, and, <laughs> and there's several things that's really made a big change in. In, uh, in bow hunting, and, and one is carbon arrows, mm-hmm. the, the rangefinder, uh, much faster bows, oh, arrow yeah. rest. Years ago, we used to have a lot of trouble with arrow rest, and and now that we've got you know so many of the whisker biscuits and the drop away rest uh, arrows, though the carbon arrows hardly ever get bent mm-hmm. uh, compared to the old aluminum arrows. And uh, in the rangefinder, those things have really, really made a major big difference. Mm-hmm. What were rangefinders like when you first started hunting? Like, what's the significant change that you've seen between the they, ones well, now they, and then? They, they had little mirrors inside with a dial, and it was a split image. And you would put the, it was sort of like focusing a camera. Mm-hmm. You would see two images of the target, and you'd bring them together when they were clear, then you would look at the dial and you'd know the range. Oh, wow. that's but interesting. they were very inconsistent. <laughs> oh, okay. That's... Very, very inconsistent. <laughs> well, so you couldn't get that far, obviously, because of first your bows and then also the range finder. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, um, how much do you practice with your bow to be effective? And just before a fight, like two or three weeks, I'll start shooting, you know, a couple dozen arrows a day or sometimes 50 arrows. I do not just like shooting that paper or just target mm-hmm. shooting. Oh, yeah. I, I practice mainly to make sure my equipment's working properly, and I, I just, I, I'm a hunter more than I am a target shooter. Mm-hmm. But and it's the same thing with exercise. People... You know, they work out, work out, you know, I do, I probably spent less than two hours my entire life in a gym. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my Lord. Man. Seriously, and, and, and I don't have any gym equipment at home. Uh, before a hunt, I'll, I'll climb up and down stairs for, you know, a couple of weeks ahead of time. I'll start doing that maybe twice a day and not do it a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but mm, I've been blessed with, uh, I guess, a, a, a good mental toughness or something. I'm not sure what it is, <laughs> but I'm not, 
I don't run fast. I've never been a uh, a great athlete. Uh, I was a professional bowler back when I was 18 years old. But very that's true, right. very true. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm, I'm not a real physical person. But I know guys that are incredibly physical. They run marathons. They go to the gym. They can work out for hours. And after four or five days in the mountains with lousy food, lousy weather, maybe no game, uh, they just quit. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, and I, and I credit Dave Simpson, one of my very first outfitters that I really learned a lot from the mental toughness of, of hunting. And uh, he said, I've had football players that could, you know, pick you up and carry you around the mountain on their shoulder. <laughs> but mm-hmm. after a few days, get me out of here. Yeah. I want to stay, you know, it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's... I think mental, mental toughness is a lot more important than physical toughness. I've got friends that I know are way overweight. Some of them have a big gut on them. But man, they can hunt. And they can stay in the mountains, and they can they can make it happen. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know for my hunts, I have I always train. I train for about six months before I go on my hunts. Um, so it's crazy that you don't even train, and you're still very successful with your hunts. Yeah, but I just think it's very interesting um, in comparison to how you train for your hunts and how I train for my hunts. Given <clears throat> my lung capacity isn't that great, so I have to train more anyway. But even my dad, who's in very good shape, he trains hard for his hunts. And uh, I just think it's funny how um, you don't train for years, but you end up still very successful in your hunts. Well, one of the things that, you know, when I was doing a, a lot of hunting, that was training. I mean, I was doing a lot of hunting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. So, 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 you know, chasing turkeys around or whether you're chasing elk or deer or whatever, uh, you you tend to stay in shape, and, and anyway, you you asked a question here about the percentage of uh, successful hunts with a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's really hard to pinpoint that because I've had some species that it took me five hunts to shoot one animal, and um, and then other times it, it seems like it's. it's you know, pretty easy. Uh, I would say it's about sixty percent of the time I would be successful. Wow, that's oh, very wow. high. That is yeah. high. That's that. You know, with a bow, I'm I'm very very pleased with that. Um, you know, I I didn't get a sheep my first three hunts, and then I went eight hunts in a row and killed a sheep every hunt. And then after the eight sheep, I went five times and didn't kill another one. Wow! Wow, that's crazy. Uh, do you do you think you've just learned a lot from your experiences, and so you've been able to incorporate everything that you've learned from your failures and your successes to help uh, keep your success up? You know, and, and I, I still make mistakes. I, I uh, forget where it was. I called it an amateur mistake. Um, but I, you know, you still make mistakes, mm-hmm. and that's that's part of part of uh, life and part of learning. Even though you you know that this failed another time, uh, but it does happen. 
Mm-hmm. You, uh, but you do learn. And I learned from guides a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and from friends. Uh, sitting around a campfire with, with your buddies or at the, at the Pope and Young show. Mm-hmm. Boy, you can learn a lot by just listening to guys like, you know, Frank Noska and Jack Frost and Tom Miranda. And there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of experienced bull hunters that are willing to share their ideas and their successes and failures. You know, Tom, that's, that's one of the things that when I first met you through Dirk Eddy, and uh, I think it was at the Wild Sheep, it may have been before the Grand Slam meeting, but I was so impressed at how humble all of you guys that I'd heard about for years and, you know, are legends in the sport, how, how humble you guys are, how willing you are to help people learn things, how accepting you are of new people into the sport, and um, just the congeniality. I think that, I don't know if that's a byproduct of the fact that people are running, you know, 50% or less in success rates a lot of times, and um, there's not a whole, there's not as much arrogance and, um, I don't know, pomposity in that group compared to some of the other organizations I've been affiliated with, um, hunting and non-hunting, where people are successful and they kind of think a lot of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're, you're kind of one of the pioneers for real success in this sport. And I think that your personality is, is so welcoming. A lot of people sort of adopt a similar attitude. Well, I, I'm a believer in sharing, uh, in sharing life experiences. And I'm in the car wash business, and, and uh, we've been real active in the International Car Wash Association. And I call it idea sharing and problem solving seminars, where you'll get a panel of guys or an audience and just bounce questions off of each other, but share what has worked for you and what has not worked for you. A lot of times it's just as important to know what not to do as it is to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you learn a lot of that from experiences. And both hunters, for the most part, are really good sharers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is something that I, I, I think is real important to tell uh, young bow hunters and, and uh, to go to Pope and Young, to go to organizations and attend seminars, and and uh, people are willing to share. Yeah. Uh, don't, be, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. I'm on the phone a lot. I love to talk on the phone. <laughs> and people say, what should I do about, you know, the weather? Is it going to be bad at this time of year? Is it better to go earlier or later? But most bull hunters are very willing to share their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I uh, was talking to Lincoln and he was saying that um, you and Jack Frost and all those people are very willing to help him in his archery journey. And he's learned a lot from you guys. And we were just talking about how, first of all, like my dad said, how humble you guys are and how willing you are to help young hunters and other hunters to just um, help improve and, and achieve their hunting goal. Yep. There's no, no doubt about it. Something, too, that I think is... is uh and, it, and it's changed so much, is I love, used to love videoing hunts mm-hmm. and sharing the videos. Um, and I still do. But videos and, and DVDs are like a thing of the past. It's all mm-hmm. podcasts and it's all uh, YouTube and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, 
a little bit behind the times. I'm 76 years old, and I, I need people like you guys to help doing this podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, come on, Tom. you got to give yourself a little bit of credit. I was going through your... Uh, your uh, your computer when I was in the Northwest Territories, and I, and you have thousands of photos and videos of awesome hunts and adventures you've been on, and uh, I remember yeah. I'd I'd walk around showing it to other people in camp, and we were just amazed by some of the the uh, adventures you've been on, and I and I I always loved showing it to you and asking you questions like whoa what happened here and all this stuff to have you expand on the adventure, and it's always very entertaining, and I learned a lot of lessons from that. It was pretty cool. I call I call it making memories. Mm-hmm. Let's go let's go make some memories. And uh, there's a, there's a saying that I think is kind of cool is uh, a birth certificate shows you were born. A death certificate shows you have died. Pictures show that you have lived. That's very true. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very true. true. Yeah. You know, and and uh, I I'll sit on an airplane. A lot of times you're flying somewhere and you're four, five, six-hour flight and get the laptop out and just look at all the friends you've hunted with and the different uh, people you've been with and it just makes life so much more rewarding to to know that you've been blessed to have all those different experiences and different memories. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And also, one of the reasons I love this podcast is when I get to talk to my family and other friends about this, we get to reminisce on so many memories that we have, and especially hunting memories because we hunt together as a family a lot and with our friends, and we've created so many memories that we would not have had if we didn't hunt, and I think that that's one of the main reasons I love hunting so much is because you get such great memories, and then you also become friends with such great people like you and then create memories like you and David have hunting sheep in the NWT. Yeah. Yep. No doubt about it. And, and, and the thing too is, is, is the, the mountain people, the guides, and that. Uh, I know a lot of people ask me about the foreign hunts I've been on. Uh, aren't you scared? You know, I've hunted Pakistan. I think I've hunted four different stand countries: Turkmenistan, wow. Tajikistan, and uh, Pakistan. And, and your people are basically the same no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. They love to laugh. They love to smile. They love uh, basically the same things we all love. Wow. And they love to be, we all want to be appreciated. And if you can laugh and smile and, and show appreciation, no matter where you go, you'll have a good time. I think that's a, uh, a lesson for, for life everywhere. I think I agree. Yeah. But especially in the mountains, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something about the the, the, the mountain people. Uh, it's it's really really a special experience, and I've been blessed. To, I've been so many places that they've never shot a bow before, mm-hmm. and with a lot of a lot of guides that have never never even seen one. Mm-hmm. And um, only I always bring an extra bow with me, extra arrows and uh, blunts and just let them shoot shoot the bow. Hmm. They oh, absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. I remember you were showing me some videos on your laptop of, I, I can't remember where it was. It might have been in Pakistan or, or somewhere. It might have been in uh, 
uh, maybe Russia or something. I can't remember, but uh, some of the native people were shooting the bow there, and they were just amazed, like, what the heck is this is this thing, you know? But uh, and then also, did, I, I remember you took a little kid bow fishing, and he was shooting fish out of a out of a, out of a river, and he was just having the time of his life, and it was so cool. Yeah, that was on a muskox hunt in uh, in Northwest Territories, and uh, but they just you know it, it builds relationships. Uh, it does with yeah. with you and the local people, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, it, it really makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, that that's so cool that you do that, and like you mentioned earlier, you're seventy six, but. You look and you act like you're still in your 20s, and we always talk about it. You are like a little kid when you're out hunting and when you talk about it. Um, and I was just like, how do you stay so energetic and young at heart? It's, it makes it so fun to talk to you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, a, you know, it, it's just life. It, it, we're so blessed mm-hmm. to have the opportunities we have and, and be able to get up and go. Uh, I just can't imagine uh, just staying home. People watch TV and sit around and, and do nothing. And it, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because there's such there's so much beauty out there. There's so much uh, action with people, especially. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have a business where I started in 1965. It's, you know, 50, I guess it's 54 years ago I started this car wash. And I love my employees. Mm-hmm. I love working with our guys that have been with us 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And it's such a blessing to have, have those kind of people. And, and in the hunting world, the guys that you meet, the relationships, uh, this one family, the Simpsons, I think I hunted 28 times with them over the years. Oh, my Whoa. gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah we <laughs> hunted with them. Uh, Carol and I did. I hunted with them a couple times. And she did, too. And Great people, but you by far have the record, I think, <laughs> for hunting with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... <clears throat> It's crazy, and I love hunting, and obviously we all do. And just getting out there in the outdoors is such a different experience. Um, a lot of my friends aren't hunters, and so they do, like, they sit at home and they watch TV, or maybe they'll go around town and do some stuff, but no- nothing compares to going out in the outdoors and going on hunts. You meet so many people. You enjoy the nature and God's creations. You enjoy the animals. And it's not like you're going on a hike. It's not like you're going camping because you are observing the animals and you're observing everything in much more detail than you would if you were just kind of spending time there. So I think you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about nature and the animals um, as well when you're out spending time hunting them. The other thing that, you know, we love, Denise and I love wild Mm beef. We have a freezer with moose in it, with whitetail, Halibut from Alaska, and eating sheep meat on top of the mountain is one of the highlights of, of a sheep hunt. Yes, totally. I agree. Uh, totally. Uh, I know you saw the video of, uh, of one of the guide friends of mine, uh, Tim Stevenson, uh, on a backpack hunt. You have that little one-burner stone. Mm-hmm. And he said, let's see, see if we can find a flat rock. So I'm looking around, and there's a, a little flat rock, and he says, here, bring it over here, and we put it on the burner, and 
beat that flat rock. He had a little salt and pepper in his backpack. And we caught up some backstraps and put them on this heated rock and cooked them. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing. Yep. Yep. Oh, you, did, you did it? Yep, yep, I did. I grabbed a flat rock and heated it up over that little burner. And, uh, and I remember on the plane there... On the plane there, we were supposed. To, or you you advised me to grab some of the salt and pepper packets that the that the flight offered, and I thank God I right. I grabbed that. Yeah, I remember on my hunt, I did that. My first sheep hunt, um, we didn't have a flat rock. Uh, we had a big kind of a bonfire, and we put um, put the steak on a stick, and someone had some seasonings, and then we just put backstrap on a stick and ate that, and it was some of the honestly some of the best meat I've ever had, and eating it. <clears throat> uh with like with the guides and with everyone and in the middle of nowhere made it all so amazing and it was honestly one of my favorite memories from hunting that i have oh yeah yeah and sheep ribs um i remember my very first sheep hunt was with a rifle in 1971 with my cousin and we um him and i both shot a sheep the same day and we cooked the ribs over an open fire. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, eating sheep ribs, we just had a little salt and pepper on them, was absolutely incredible. But my cousin got in trouble with the native guide. He threw a rib in the fire after he ate the meat off of it. Oh, the bone? And the, the native man, the bone, and the native man reached in and grabbed the bone out and threw it on the ground and looked at my cousin like, uh, 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 mm, wow. and I, I, it must be some kind of a sacred thing to the, the native oh. people there. Wow. wow. Where yeah. was this? This was in North, as a matter of fact, it was right near Norman Wells. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Wow. Yep, it was my very first sheep hunt in 1971. It was, uh, uh, with a guy, outfitter named Terry Linton. Damn. Uh, <clears throat> But that that sheep meat, I've never for, forgot that cooking that sheep meat over over an open fire the the uh, the ribs. Yeah. I tried them in I tried them in camp one time and they weren't near as good. No, <laughs> no, no. It's that experience on the mountain that makes it all so much better. Um, I'm uh-huh. on my I want to say my third sheep hunt from my desert. Um, Lincoln was mentioning how you always put on your game face. And so we did that before um, the stock on my ram, and there's videos of it, and it's so funny. Um, but I was just kind of curious, like, when you put on your game face on a hunt. Oh, uh, generally, it's just before a stalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned that with a friend from New Jersey, Greg Bokesh. We were hunting muskox, and he was getting ready to do a stalk. He said, I've got to put my game face on. And he did it, and I... And ever since he did that, I do it, and and it's funny. I I remember doing it on a white tail in Kansas. It was the biggest white tail I ever shot. Yeah. And when I climbed up to the tree stand, um, I had a friend with me, and I said, "I'm going to put my game face on." <laughs> and uh, about two hours later, I shot the biggest buck of my lifetime. Wow! Wow! Well, there is some to the psychology. I, I tried about it a lot that, of though. times. Yeah, I tried it a lot of times when it didn't work too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That would make a good story. Good story, though, would it? No, no, it makes a, a much better story when you have success. Exactly <laughs> Very right. true. But, you know, and, and some people say, "How many successful hunts have you had?" Uh, 
I, you know, I've probably been on, over the years, between rifle and bow and everything, probably close to 300 hunts. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I only, you know, I can only remember three or four that I would say were unsuccessful. Uh, in probably out of the 300, there was, you know, 100 of them at least, or 150 that I never shot anything. Mm-hmm. But the memory and, and the, the whole experience, that's a successful hunt. Yeah. Not, awesome. just yeah. About, not just about the kill. Yeah, and that's exactly a very good right. outlook on that, especially people who just go in for the kill and their goal is to get that animal and that some people who are just focused on the score of that animal, uh, they don't respect it as much. And I think that's a very good outlook to have to where you really don't have an unsuccessful hunt because you always learn something and have a good time and make amazing memories no matter what you're doing and no matter if you are or not, or if you are or are not successful. The other thing that I think a lot of people miss out on is the culture of of the local people mm-hmm. and a lot of the ways uh, that they do things. Uh, I shot a, a, a Mormon in Mongolia and the guide said, uh, would you like to see a original Mongolian barbecue? I said, what's that? He said, I will show you. <laughs> he, skinned, he skinned it out, took all the meat off the, off the carcass, and when he skinned it, he left the legs in it and just split the mouth and then skinned it down through the uh, from the head down. Oh wow! And it was it was like a football. But mm-hmm. then he heated rocks. He heated about fifteen rocks about the size of a golf ball, red hot. And he put in some onions, rocks, meat, rocks, meat, salt and pepper, and he filled this entire carcass with all the meat that he took off off the bones. Wow! And then and then he wired the mouth closed and cooked it. Hmm. It cooked inside that skin. And we had about six people there that all shared eating it. It was really good, but what an experience it was. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that sounds pretty wild. Did he gut it before he stuffed it? Oh, yeah. Okay, so he he had like the empty carcass and then shoved the meat inside it. Yeah, he skinned it first, Uh and then after he got the skin off of it, then he he gutted it, took all the, all the meat off the the, the back straps and the legs oh, gotcha. and everything, and then heated it inside there with the hot rocks and it cooked. Oh wow! It was quite an experience, and it. I don't know if you're familiar with gray squirrels. I don't think you have them in Arizona, but no, yeah, I we do. No, a yeah. lot of guys. Yeah, we, we do. We have gray squirrels. Yeah. They're delicious. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. And, uh, this moment, this moment was really good. That's funny. Wow, that's very cool. Um, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier and putting on your game face and getting focused and stuff like that. Um, like, what do you do to help yourself focus on the shot opportunity and the chance you get when you have um, an animal and a trophy animal in front of you? I, I try to act like a predator. Mm-hmm. And just really, really, really uh, be as careful and as patient and like I said before I'm a, sometimes my patience isn't always best but I've learned from the mistakes of when to move and when not to move mm. and uh, but I really 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 try to stay focused on 
what I need to do, what's my next step, mm-hmm. and and when to move and when not to move. Uh, but as far as far as a, a mental game with it, I just try my darndest to make it happen. Yeah, and, you know the, the the thing that I've learned though too is, especially on guided hunts years ago, when I mess up a shot, miss a shot, or move when I shouldn't have moved and blow a spark. I really feel bad for the guy. Mm-hmm. A lot of hunters don't give as much credit to the guide as they should. And uh, that's something that uh, I've always tried to do. And I feel bad for myself, cause, you know, especially after it's the, it's the last day or, it's, uh, you know, you may only get one opportunity. That's with sheep hunting on most of the archery sheep hunts. Mm-hmm. You may only get one or two stalks in 10 days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And boy, when you blow it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I don't have any routine. I, I put the game face on, and that's more for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but as far as a checklist or anything like that, I just try to be as much of a predator as rare as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good outlook on that. Um, also, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but in your opinion, what do you think is the biggest misconception um, of anti-hunters that they have about hunting? Well, a lot of them just, they, they just don't, most of them have never had the experience of being in the mountains and getting that close to wildlife. Mm-hmm. Most of the most of these anti hunters see it on T V and, mm-hmm. and and unfortunately it's the wrong message. Yeah. And a lot of them don't realize how much we really enjoy the meat also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the killing, but it's there's it's a whole package. Mm-hmm. And that video clip I sent you about um, the the primal dreams mm-hmm. Uh, in your podcast, this would be a good time to play it. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's getting it up, and he'll play it. Okay. But in fact, it's um, it's ready to go. So this, um, this is a video clip from Primal Dreams, and you said that's by the Mitten Brothers in the Wenzel and the Wenzel Brothers. Is that right? Wenzel, the Wenzel Brothers and the Mitten Brothers. Okay. Produced this probably fifteen twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's an awesome, awesome. Uh, DVD, and uh, but that's that message that it's Gene Wetzel's voice, but it's uh, Mike Mitten's touching the spear that he had just shot with a bow. Okay, and uh, but the message is is really really good. Great, I'll it play talks it. about we don't need, we don't need to hunt, but then again we must. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, All right. He's gonna play that. I'm gonna play it now. I think it runs about a minute and a half, but um, you should be able to hear this too, Tom. No, it's 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Passion and love for the hunt is often misunderstood. The ritual of the chase is as old as mankind itself. We no longer need to hunt, but then again, we must. If we seek the best that nature has to offer, without the challenge, respect, and sacred trust it bestows, just to boost one's ego then we have lost the essential foundation of what should be a noble pursuit. The climax of the hunt should satisfy the primitive desire to feed the inner self. 
I think that's a, gr a great message. No? Yeah, that really is. And actually, one of my very best friends, um, when I first met her, was um, anti-hunter, and she was vegan, and used it, used um, products that did not harm animals and things like that. Um, but since she's met me and kind of, she's been there through my whole um, Grand Slam journey, and she actually, um, she's not vegan anymore. She um, she comes to hunting conventions with me, and she actually supports hunters now because I think the big thing that anti-hunters don't understand is why we hunt and what we do with the animals when we hunt them and the passion and love we have for them. I think um, if anti-hunters are willing uh, to hear our side of it and are open to it, then we can help kind of change their point of view because um, it's very different when you hear uh, like a hunter's point of view because we don't go out to kill the animals just to go kill them. We go out because we love them and we want to keep their population managed and we love their meat and we love everything about it and we don't always ha harvest an animal. Sometimes we go and we have a great time on a hunt even without harvesting. And so I um, I think it's very interesting to, first of all, for my friend to have her perspective changed just by hearing uh, my story and going along with me and being open to hear the hunter's perspective. Yep. Well, you're 100% right. Something Denise and I have been doing recently, we have a, uh, a church that we go to has a senior luncheon once a month. Mm -hmm. And Denise cooks moose meatloaf, or we bring halibut, or venison stew, and we try to bring a wild dish every one of these. Nice. And we change the, the, the thinking of a lot of the people that were anti-hunters. That's, awesome. that's awesome. And that's in New York, correct? And, yeah, and that's in New York. <laughs> wow, that's wow. crazy. But, but it is upstate New York, so it's a little bit different than the big city. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, Tom. When the kids when the kids went to school, you know, and they they went to their little um, private um, Christian school, and most of there was no one in your classes that uh, that hunted. No. But they, you know, we get elk or deer or moose or buffalo, and and make jerky, and the kids would bring it to school and share with their teachers and their fellow students and. Those kids were always asking, when are you going on a next, when's your next hunt? I want you to bring me some more jerky. Mm -hmm. But they look at it oh, differently yeah. when you bring them some food, it tastes good. Mm -hmm. little, little things like that make, make a difference. I, uh, I make a lot of pepperoni. We have so many deer here in the, in the suburbs, and you can, you can, it's almost unlimited dough permits. Wow. Um, I think you can shoot three or four and then take, the permit and take a picture of it, bring the game department and the archery only areas and get another permit. But I make a lot of jerky and, and pepperoni and bring it to the car wash and share it with employees. So they love it. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's Absolutely. awesome. And I know when we go hunting, we, um, like when our whole family does, we get a lot of animals and, uh, like that, my dad's, uh, employees all love the animals and our friends love to get the meat that, uh, we bring back and we love to be able to share it with other people. Yep. Awesome. No doubt about it. Yes. Um, and Okay, so one of my other questions is that you are a very big conservationist and conservationist. I added an L. Didn't mean to do that. <laughs> conservationist. And um, you have financed numerous conservation causes. And you also do a lot of international hunting and things like that. And we talked about the villages and how hunting affects the people. And so in your experience, um, how is like the role that trophy hunters play 
in conservation and how do the local people prioritize the animals as that relate to sport hunting? Yeah. Uh, quite often, some areas, matter of fact, some areas in Asia, like um, where they hunt the Marco Polo sheep years ago, there was a lot of poaching mm-hmm. in some of these communities. And all of a sudden, trophy hunting started taking place in these communities. And the guides, a lot of the guides used to be poachers. Mm-hmm. But they found out that there was a value financial value from the village that you know and the, and the guides and and even restaurants and, and, and the, the hunting industry feeds a lot of models in, in these places and uh, so the poachers that used to be poachers are now protecting the animals they don't they they value them oh, because of trophy and I, I I've seen that that in, in uh as a fact, in uh, Azerbaijan and in uh, in Tajikistan. Oh wow, that's that's really interesting. I know that um, how poaching affects the the um, people there because obviously they don't get the money from the hunters and bringing stuff in. But it's very cool that they have those poachers have changed and realized how um, they can get the money from hunters going in there. And I think I think that's very interesting to have your output on that, especially since people who are anti-hunters here don't always understand how hunting benefits people internationally and with, um, like, in places in Africa and in Asia where you go hunting. Yeah. And, what's and the other thing is that the taxes that are put on, you know, every arrow, every broadhead, every archery, all, all hunting and fishing equipment, there's a, there's a, I can't say the name of the tax, but huge dollars goes into conservation, goes into game departments uh, from hunters. Mm-hmm. Way more than hikers and bikers and all the other people uh, that, that don't hunt mm-hmm. have no idea how much hunting supports conservation. Mm, and yeah. uh, there's, some, there's some serious numbers. I know uh, uh, Wild Sheep Organization can get you to some of that information as to how many dollars go from taxes of hunting and fishing that goes into conservation. Uh, That's another thing, too. The Wild Sheep Organization is one that I really... Uh, we we uh, finance a lot of uh, activities in that, or help finance them. Um, they call it putting sheep on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that organization does a great job relocating herds of sheep and trying to keep Domestic uh, goats and sheep away from a wild sheep is a big problem right now. But mm-hmm. organizations like that are really conservation-minded. They've got biologists that work with them, and it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, and, and Tom, I think you're referencing the Pittman-Robertson Act. Right, that's it. That was when Franklin Roosevelt signed. I guess that was, and I'm looking at it online. I, don't, I didn't memorize this, so I'm not <laughs> taking credit for it. But I guess FDR signed it in September of 1937. And it has raised a lot of money, and so and it is. It's an excise tax that's placed tax that's placed on sale of hunting equipment, and it does a lot for the North American wild game for Absolutely. the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's awesome um, to hear how much hunting impacts other things more than people would think. Um, but we have mentioned a lot um, 
earlier that you do a lot of international hunting. And I know, um, like for me and for other people, it is a little scary to think about going into some of those Asian countries. So um, have you ever felt unsafe when you're going hunting in some of those countries? Uh, I've, never, I've never felt really threatened. Mm-hmm. I had a somewhat of an unpleasant experience in China one time. I was at a dinner with some game department people, and there was a guy that came in, and he was drinking quite heavily and smoking at the table, and and he offered me a cigarette, and I said, no, thank you, and then he offered me a beer, and I, I'm kind of a strange dude. I've never, ever in my entire life had alcohol of any kind, wine, beer, wow. liquor. Wow, that's, so that's I just, crazy. You know, I've never had a smoke. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of a, a different man. <laughs> anyway, this guy was insulted that I wouldn't drink or smoke with him. Wow. And I, he said it in Chinese, and I didn't understand it. But there was the interpreter at the table that had a lady sitting next to him that was in our camp. I thought she was going <laughs> to scratch this guy's eyes out. She went, she flipped out on him. Really? He said oh, something wow. about, and then, and then the interpreter later later said, he must not be much of a man if he won't have a drink with me. Oh, oh really? What the heck? But that's uncomfortable. <laughs> that, that's, that's, weird. that's uncomfortable, though, if you're sitting there and someone's kind of putting you in an awkward situation in their country and and you can't understand I, what he's saying, things are getting aggressive. Oh yeah, no. And, but as far as being really uh, uh, in danger, I've never had a bad experience. I really have. Like I've had some guys drive drive so fast on mountain roads that kind of oh, scared right. me a little bit. And I, every once in a while, you got to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really not in that much of a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> How about animal-wise? Have you ever been charged or uh, felt endangered by one of the animals you're hunting or one of the animals that were with an animal you were hunting? Um, I, I've had, I think I can probably talk about five different false charges of, of theirs. Wow. wow. I've, never, I've never had one that I had to shoot. I was in a, um, a tree over a... Uh, bunch of salmon that were dying that were trapped in a stream and there was bear sign everywhere and this tree we, we didn't have tree specs we didn't have a tree stand we lashed a piece of plywood to a tree that was hanging over the stream and mm-hmm. I was up in the tree and uh, a sow came with three three cubs really little cubs and uh, I tried to scare her off and I was really worried. I had a shotgun with me. I was bow hunting, but I carried a shotgun just to have some protection. And I thought I was going to have to shoot this sow. And uh, she came within seven yards, and which was underneath my tree, and she could have easily climbed it. And what worried me is that she was going to chase her cubs up the tree, and it would be a really, really bad deal. If I shot her, you kill four bears. Right. Mm-hmm. The cubs would never survive. But fortunately, uh, I just shut up and didn't say anything. Uh, I, I hollered at her twice, and she kept coming closer. Wow. Her teeth and, and just, she, she was really mad. And uh, finally, she just turned and walked away. 
that's but, interesting. Uh, had, had several, several, uh, what they call false charges. Mm-hmm. Never, never, ever had to, to, to shoot a bear. Yeah. Have you ever heard of any stories like um, of people in Asian countries or anything like that um, who have gotten into situations that you have avoided? I've had some friends where I think George Harms one time was in Turkmenistan or something, and there was like a um, protest, and it, it got pretty ugly and pretty scary, and I think he had to hire a special plane to get him out of there. Wow. Uh, I know I know Tom Miranda had a had a problem in Africa one time with with uh some kind of an upraising thing that uh was was scary. But I I've, I've never personally had ever had any trouble. Wow. I think uh, I think Rini Snyder had to spend some time in a hotel and not be able to go to the airport because the airport was closed because of some uh, some kind of a political deal. Mm. Um, okay, well, this I have another question that I think um, I get asked a lot, and it's honestly a hard question to answer. Um, but what is your favorite animal to hunt? And if you can't answer that, your top some of your top animals that you love hunting. My favorite animal is any animal that lives in the mountains. I, I just love mountain hunting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mostly sheep. But any kind of a mountain hunting is, is what I really, really, really love. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, people ask me what's, uh, you know, your your best trophy or your favorite animal that you shot. It's like almost asking me what was your favorite meal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love a good steak. But, boy, a good turkey dinner is hard to beat, too. Mm-hmm. Or a uh, sheep, sheep on a mountain. But, um it's really uh, there's no one particular species. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I shouldn't say that because sheep is not, is my number one. But I still love hunting all the other animals, even you know elk or deer. We're going to Kodiak in November, mm. and I'm so looking forward to hunting them in the mountains of Kodiak. Awesome. That's awesome. Uh, you're hunting for deer. Are you hunting for deer or for bears? Sitka deer, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Awesome. That's, that's a that's a great species, and I've eaten them before. In of the Alaskan hunters, or the locals, they go meat hunting for Sitka deer. It's one of the very best of all the deer species to eat. Mm. I don't know why, but it, it is. It's pretty awesome meat. Yeah, I can vouch for that. We we did that on actually it was the November during the general election when Trump got elected, 2016. That that night we had deer ribs, and the way that the um, the boat captain prepared them, you know, in the slow cooker, the meat just fell yep. off the bone, and doesn't doesn't taste like deer. I mean, not not like a lot of the deer we have down here, at least in Arizona and other places I hunted where they taste a little gamier. These were just very very mild, just great meat. I would I would agree with that. Denise is the same way. Her favorite animals to hunt is she said anything that lives in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's her favorite. Yep, and you see some beautiful country up there when you go hunting in the mountains and some experiences that are crazy and something you would never experience if you didn't go up there. All right, um, so like we talked about, you are a very big bow hunter, and I was, and we, how you love helping people and um, giving them tips and stuff with 
um, with bow hunting. So I was just like wondering what some of your top advice would be to give someone who is getting into bow hunting or is just um, kind of new to the sport. Um, do it before you, especially if you're going to go on any kind of guided hunt, make sure you do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Ask questions, ask other hunters. And going to the hunting conventions, uh, even though the local ones, there's some great information. And try to surround yourself with people that are willing to share where to go, what to do, what not to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that's available today that, that I didn't have in my earlier hunting career is the podcast. And it is a lot of the information that's available on uh, on YouTube. Uh, there's some great, great information available today that we didn't use to have. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the new hunters are have a great advantage over back in the old days when it was trial and error because there's a lot of good information. Mm-hmm. And uh, guys like Tom Miranda, I think Tom's videos and that uh, tell it like it is. Mm-hmm. And you can learn a lot from, from Tom's books. He's also got some really, really, really good hunting books uh, adventures that uh, Tom has done but um, try to surround yourself in some archery shops that mm-hmm. are, are really good and some are not so really good but I, <laughs> I know the archery shop that I go to there's a, a group of guys that are willing to sit down and talk to a new hunter and give them some guidance mm-hmm. and that's something that it's, it's changed a lot Archery shops, so many people are buying things from Amazon because it's a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. But a really good archery shop is a valuable thing to have uh, because there's, there's things that go wrong with your bow or techniques that you need to know. And buying equipment online, you don't get that kind of information. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm a real supporter of the local archery shop. Yeah, for sure. I know my dad goes to our archery shop in town a lot, and those guys are some of the most fun guys to talk to. And I was, I don't bow hunt that often, um, <clears throat> but my dad is in there very often before a hunt, and he gets a lot of tips from them and little uh, things to help him practice before yeah, he goes on Yeah, and it's great to hunt. support the local businesses, Tom. You know, it's so much. <coughs> so many of the brick-and-mortar stores are struggling with competition off the Internet, and, you know, obviously they have a different overhead, but they're employing people and in general, you know, if you if you go to a, a place consistently and they provide a good service and they, you know, are good to customers, you develop relationships with these guys and um, you know you can learn a lot from them. They're there to help you and um, no, it's 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 a worthwhile place to go. And I fully agree yep. with what you said. Yep, totally. Yep. All right. Um, my last question is kind of in addition to the video we saw from Primal Dreams. Um, what advice do you have? for the young generation of sportsmen and their role in advancing the popularity and reputation of hunting? That's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, you know, join the clubs, uh, I think, by quality gear management uh, is, is an organization that I've gotten active with locally. They've got a lot of 
doing a lot of good things as far as conservation and trying to to uh, harvest more doves. Some areas, especially uh, in the in the east, there's way too many does. And uh, this quality deer management organization is something that's, I think, uh, good to belong to. Wild sheep. Uh, I'm not a real fan of SCI, and I think you guys understand why, mm -hmm. uh, because of the hunting situation. Uh, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, um, when we did talk about it, Tom, when we were talking earlier before the podcast, you know, I think we shared some of the same opinions regarding the responsibilities of modern day hunters and, and representing ourselves well with how we transport game, what we put on uh, Facebook or Instagram or social media. We are being yep. scrutinized and it's important. And you and I talked about this off, off the air that, um, you know, the younger generation has a lot of responsibility for for acting in a way that makes hunting, you know, progresses the image and the message and not just putting bloodied pictures out there that can make us look bad. I agree on that 100%. And, you know, some guys post things on Facebook and, and it gets out there in the public. And I've seen some horrible things. And um, I think I, you heard me say, friends won't let friends drive drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, hunting friends shouldn't let friends or people that they see do things that you know is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, trespassing or you know, driving four wheelers across farm fields where you know you're going to get in trouble, and it just mm -hmm. it, it hurts hunting. Mm -hmm. So I mean, years ago, we used to strap a deer on the hood of a pickup truck or on the hood of your car uh, and drive around town, and, and it was it was no big deal. Right. But today, it hurts us. Oh, I agree. So we, we have to regulate each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It was so interesting hearing your point of view and being able to talk to you. Um, every year we go to Sheep Show and we get to hang out with you. It's so much fun, and you're such a great person to talk to about hunting and just life in general. So thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your journey with us. It was great talking to you. Thanks for inviting me, and I enjoyed it very, very much. And uh, I know Dad's going on a really great adventure mm -hmm. tomorrow, Le I think. Leaving yeah. tomorrow for Alaska to chase bears, oh, grizzly bears with a bow and arrow. Yeah, it's uh, well, <laughs> crazy. You're going to be with one of my favorite people, uh, guide people, and you're going to have a great time. Yep, Mark. Uh, yeah. And how do you pronounce his last name? I thought it's Goodsmittle. How do you say it? Gootsmittle, we call it Gootsy, so I don't, I Appreciate one of Jennifer's. Day. One of Jennifer's favorite guides to hunt with is Matt Lowenquist. Oh, yeah. she got a oh, another great, great, great guy. Yeah. Yeah, I, Plus, I, Jennifer I, I can eat crackers off the top of his head because he's shorter than her. That's not actually true, oh. but I have. <laughs> 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 Sorry, you know, one of the things 
about guys like Matt and, and uh, Michael Simpson, and uh, you know they're not trying to prove themselves as tough guys. Mm. Right. You know they're patient with the hunter, and, and I, I love being around those guys that are uh, respectful and enthusiastic, and and uh, it's, it's just a great experience. Yeah, awesome. Well, sure. Have fun and, and uh, God bless. Thank you All so right, much, thank Tom, you and so thanks so much. Good luck to you and Denise, and um, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, awesome thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to you guys coming to New York someday and uh, and uh, spending a little time up here in this beautiful North, upstate New York. We'll have we to do it. We, I only live 30 miles from Vermont, so this is not the big city. Awesome. Yeah. No, we'll, awesome. we'd All love right. to come up there and visit Take you. Take care. All right. All right, things you do. Thanks, thanks Tom. Tom. For sure. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, well, that was great talking to him. That was so much fun. He's such a great person to talk to, and like I said, he is like, like a little kid. It's very true. No, he's he really yeah, gets... Uh, he's awesome. You know, <coughs> as, as I talk to him, as I've told you guys throughout your life, you know, you got to suck the juice out of life and get the most out of it and worry about the things you can control and don't worry about the stuff you can't. Mm-hmm. Tom totally yeah. as as work. that. Everything yeah. he does. He's yes. an awesome storyteller. <coughs> I wish we had more time so we could tell us some stories about... Um, some of his own stories of yeah, you, know, you got to spend quality bears. time with him. Oh, uh, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, you could do a four-hour podcast with that guy. He's a legend. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, the audio came out okay. It's tough on these. He's as as he said, he's in New York, and it just seems like the distance and all the cell transmissions and stuff. You sort of lose some of the crispness of the audio, but hopefully, that was good for your listeners. Yeah, hopefully, it was. Uh, it was very fun talking to him and uh, very entertaining, and I love hearing his stories, even when David tells it to us from his uh, experiences with, with Tom himself. So um, yeah. <clears throat> I'm thankful that he was able to talk to me, and um, like we mentioned earlier, he is a hunting legend, and I think it's amazing how even uh, with everything he's done and everything he's accomplished and um, like the popularity and fame he has in the hunting community, he was still willing to talk to me. And I don't know, I think that's very, kind of, honestly, something that you wouldn't expect someone with his kind of fame to do. And I think that's um, amazing. And it definitely exemplifies um, hunters and how willing they are to help fellow hunters. Very humble, like class act. Totally. Yep, for sure. Yep. And, you know, it was great hearing Tom's journey because, you know, life is short. So am I. And I'm trying to make the most out of every day. And I hope that you guys do, too. I hope you all have a great journey and you make it an epic one.